And then I built a product and I put a price on it. It was, it was a very low price just as, to get started. Just put it out there and see, start getting the feedback from customers. And as soon as you have the first customer that pays for the product, like somebody that signs up, that is such a huge motivation. It's a very a strong validation of your idea. I can't stress this enough. Like once you have just one person that is willing to pay for the product, that changes everything. That's Jonathan, who goes from zero to building his highly profitable, cash flow positive SaaS startup quietly under the radar. Hey, welcome to the Small Fish Big Money podcast. I'm your host, Mina Fong. In this world where big fishes seem to dominate, this podcast uncovers the amazing wins small fishes can create. We dive into the candid conversations with solo founders and brilliant investors who have beaten the odds and make big money while doing it. Simply put, how do they play the game and win the game? If they can't play the game, how do they make the game and still win the game? Let's get right into the conversation with Jonathan. Jonathan, welcome to the Small Fish Big Money podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate your support and belief in this Small Fish Big Money movement. As a mm-hmm. founder in your late 20s, I hope you can help inspire other young founders in their 20s to start building beautiful products, creating value and making big money so they can move to the middle before mm-hmm. their 30s. Yeah. We need more founders or people to move to the middle to sustain the ecosystem and the greater economy as we've been discussed that a little bit of how the society is going to the opposite extreme. So given the privacy concerns, I will use your first name only. Okay. And also for disclosure for our audience, Jonathan is one of our founder family of its kind. However, today is about you and your startup. Mm-hmm. So let's start with your origin story. How did you get started in SaaS? Actually, I've always had a, a strong interest in computers. But in 2005, when I had to go to university, the computer science business world wasn't the same as it is today. So my parents worked in software since the early 90s. From For me, what I saw as the job, it consisted of working long hours and staring at a screen, black screen with green letters and just talking to clients on the phone all the time answering support calls Saturday and Sunday. So it just didn't seem as cool as it is seen today. And it, it, it wasn't very appealing for me at the time. So when I had to go to college, I ended up going into a completely different course. But I always felt out of place. I knew that I had to figure out like a way to work with computers at some point, but I just didn't know what to do exactly. So I had to go a different, a windy road to go back to, to software. So fast forward, let's 10 years, 2015, the software landscape changed. So I decided to give it another try. That's basically the, the summary of it. I'm curious about what did you ending up studying college instead? It was because agriculture. Agriculture. You were yeah. studied to become a farmer? And not, not only a farmer, but also a farmer's assistant. So you, you get hired by farmers to help them manage the farm. On the technical side, in terms of like we studied fertilizers and plants, like bo- botany plants, 
how to like raise chickens or, or cattle. So it's a very comprehensive course, like, completely outside of what I was familiar with. I understand that you were a banker at some point after your university. How did you get between graduating as a farmer assistant kind of mindset than to become a farmer or in or become working in the bank? Did you go to do any MBA in finance in that matter? I took some business courses in Canada uh, and ended up getting a job at the bank, mostly by accident. It was just luck that I got the job. So it wasn't really related to agriculture or the course that I took, which was mostly focused on marketing, but it, it got me started in the business. And it was a really good job. I, I was happy there. But I, I always felt also again, like that I, that it wasn't exactly 100% what I, what I like to do. One of my roommates that moved into, into the house that I was living at, he was working in software. So that's when kind of my idea of what software development was started to shift because I saw his job as being like something that was really cool, you know, and uh, he was making some money on the side selling apps on the uh, Apple App Store. And it just seems like a very interesting area to go back to, totally different from what I saw when I was growing up. And especially after some some of the movies that came out around that time, I think The Social Network kind of showed a whole different way of what going into the SaaS business was like. So that's what kind of got me interested again into going back to that. That's very interesting that your friends inspire you to look into software again. But at the time, you have very comfortable job and you were even, your boss were even thinking about promoting you. Yeah. So what made you want to build your own SaaS business while you're being so comfortable and have a good potential to rise up in the bank? I was concerned that if I stayed at the bank, I might not have the opportunity to learn as much. Just watching at the bank, one thing that I remember was at the front desk, we had about eight computers and there was only two people working at the front. So that always is a, is kind of a reminder that the bank at some point had a lot of people working at the branch and then they had to fire a lot of people to keep going. So I was concerned, let's say that if I didn't, didn't learn enough, that I could be like, you could be let go at some point. So I decided that I, I have to like work on myself, work on my skills as much as possible to be more resilient in the market. So even though I was I was stable and safe for now at the bank, but I think I felt like I needed to be in in a, in a job or in a position that I would that would take me to learn more. Just seeing like my my friends' experience, it seemed like a lot more flexible. The work space was more interesting, and he had a lot of opportunities because he was always telling me like how he was getting other other job offers and other places that he could go. So I kind of wanted to experience the same thing. And plus, I think it's a, it's a matter of affinity. So it, it, I always liked working with computers. So I feel like I would never stop until I got, I got back to working with it. And that's what the main motivation was. When you think about transitioning into a different career, we think about going back to get another degree or paying a lot of money to someone to show us the quick and easy way to make money. So how did you plan your transition? How did you go about what to learn, how to learn, and also not wasting your money? Yeah, that was that was really hard, actually. So first, I started with HTML, because that's the it's a simpler language to learn, and took it from there. So as I was learning HTML, then the book 
that teaches you that. It kind of gives you hints of what the next step is. So if you want to progress in your journey. So if you, if you keep following the, the breadcrumbs, you kind of get in a point where you put all the pieces together to make a software. Because I, I remember reading the HTML book and there's a point in the book where you create a little form, but the form doesn't do anything. So if you click on submit, it doesn't, it has no action. So the book says, if you want this to, to do some action, you're going to have to learn JavaScript, which is the next step in the learning process. So it was really just following these breadcrumbs until you have a, a full application, something that works. But it wasn't easy because there's a lot of contradictory and confusing paths that you can take. Some of them can lead you to waste some time. Some, some others are more efficient. I spent a long time learning different things that didn't necessarily work out for what I wanted to do. But eventually I found a path. So now if I had to, to tell somebody that wants to do this, to do this business, I would tell them to focus on, on a path instead of trying following every fad because there's a lot of tendencies. So. If you're learning something, you, you get distracted by what developers are telling you. And then you kind of, you drop that and you start learning something else and it, and it's going to make you waste time. So yeah, it's like basically books and my friends giving me the ideas of what to learn next. So what did you learn next then if I were following your path? Even though I study computer science in university, but then my parents asked me to go to business school. I think that might be one of the the worst decision I ever make. Well, actually, the decision was made for me. So maybe it's too late to think about that now. But at the same time, I was wondering if there's a quicker, better path by, by you. Read the books first. And then what's your next step? Did you take any course from any, any online course, any free coding bootcamp, something like that? Yeah, I mostly first I focused on the books because I discovered in university that learning through the books was a, was a good process that worked for me. And then I complemented that with courses that I took online, especially from Udemy. So you can go there and you can find courses that are taught by people who, who have accounts on that site. Yeah, so it was a combination of those. So I started with the books and then I, I complemented it with Udemy courses. That's the combination that worked for me. I know some people like to take they have some courses that you can take that you actually do the exercises on the website, like Code Academy and others. But it really depends on, on your preference, your, your learning style. So did you spend thousands to, to transition into your new career or you spend a very minimum amount of money? No, I think it was very minimal. Something that surprised me also was that how much, how affordable it is to have a lot of books that teach you a great deal of knowledge for not that big of a price. As long as you, you have the time, which I, I was fortunate enough to have the job that allowed me to you know work during the day and then take time at night to learn. And I was surprised that how much how much you can get just from from not spending much at all. I, mo- most of the books that I bought, I, electronic books and the Udemy courses are run around like $30. That's the way to go. Do you think the books you have read and the course you've taken are still applicable today because software changed so much. I know the language hasn't changed that fast, but do you think if you're sharing the link with our audience, they will still be able to make good use of those courses and books? I think so. I think the cost has stayed pretty much the same, if not cheaper, because now there, there are even more resources that you can take. Some of them are free. Yeah, I, I would say to me, the cost of the material itself was was very low. It was mostly the time that you have to put in. So I, I had to study at night when I was working. And after I quit the job, 
then I had the full day to, to learn. And that helped a lot. Yeah. You quit the job. What made you think? So how did you prepare to be able to sustain yourself after you quit your job? Did you get any subsidized from your family? Were you saving up before you quit your job? How did you plan for the transition? I didn't have a lot of time to plan, but it just so happened that I, I saved money. I had some money saved up so I could afford to take some time off. And initially, it was only going to be for a year. And my boss at the bank said that if I wanted to go back, there was a, I had the opportunity to go back. So I just saw it as a, as a one-year time off that I could take to, to learn and discover if this thing is for me. As for my parents, they said they would support me if I needed, but it, luckily I, I didn't need extra help. And to save costs, I actually moved back with roommates because at the time I was living by myself. So I, I actually decided to move back just to save a little bit. And it, it really worked out in the end. You remind me of Yino Mark, who mentioned about building or being a founder. He mentioned that if he can eat a $2 hot dog meal every day, he can afford to be a founder. I guess moving back with other people and have roommates is similar, not to that extreme, Yeah, that you sacrifice some short-term discomfort, or maybe it's fun to be with roommates. And then have more savings and then you can sustain your, your building career a little bit longer if yeah. it doesn't work out. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly what I was planning to buy myself as much time as possible to learn now, now that I had the whole day to, to, to do it and uh, also try to work on real projects as soon as possible. So I, I took on a project for some family members. They had an, a business idea. So that was the first real case that I had to work on. And that was really helpful because it's, it's so good to have something real that you can, you can build. It really increases your learning speed so much because you, then you have to solve real problems. So for that case, you are very lucky. We are not trying to make this sound very rosy and sexy. You are actually already start in a very lucky position to have a great job, accident and to have supportive parents. Mm-hmm. And then able to get the first project from friends and family. Mm-hmm. So if people don't have a friends and family to build a project for, do you yeah. have any idea what they can do? How do they approach people about, hey, I'm learning this. Would you be willing to give me a project? I guess if, if whoever it is, if they already have a job, I would say, the job can, can keep you, can sustain your, your, your standard of living. And then you, you have to make time to study or to work on any project that you want to, you want to take. If you don't have that stability, then it's, it's going to be way harder, but then you have to find ways to cut costs. So it's, there's really no, not sure what, what other way that I would suggest for, for people to, to do that. I'd say, yeah, just, just taking also, I would say if you're working on a project, a side project, I would look into making that a paid service instead of working for free as soon as possible. Mm. Not only, not just because it's going to help you keep the business, but also because it's going to help you fo- keep you focused. Because as soon you don't have, even if you tr- have a free trial or, or if it's a sample, but just m- maybe try to find a way to put a cost or a price o- on it. Cause that is going to help you focus on what's essential and what's, what's the kind of thing that people will, will actually buy. And, and you put the features that are going to be that you can build against and not so many other extra things. Because if you have a free product, then you just, for me, at least I ended up spending a lot of time creating features that really 
that they had no customers willing to pay for. Those million dollar or golden advice that that totally resonate. Early in my career, when I want to transition into startup, I gave so many free advice, working for free. And because I was listening to people's idea of giving value, I, I don't know what that means. I, I thought like giving for free is building value, but that's a dangerous about giving things for free is people will not value it as much. So you're ending up maybe even wasting their, their time. Let alone of money, they are not wasting their money, but time is very important for everyone nowadays. Or, mm-hmm. or I would suggest people to value their time even more. And then they're not taking your advice or taking your work seriously. So that will be something I wished I could have done differently is to, to sell the services or sell the product Huawei. Because that's the best validation for your ideas, whether you're in the market for good. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes, I, I learned the same thing. But it, same as you, I wish I would go back and do things differently because I, I did spend a lot of time in that journey, learning journey just making products that didn't have a, a real price attached to it. And that kind of uh, made me lose the focus on, on what was important. So charging Huawei makes you focus on solving the problem. And also make you focus on building what matters to people, not yeah. to to us as founders. What eventually made you to build your the current business? How did you know when you hit a quarter market fit? One thing to build on your idea about charging Huawei. How, how did you even find the problem to solve after you mm-hmm. did the project yeah. for a family fan? That project that I did didn't work out. So it was more of a concept. So we just, I just built the concept and then we, we couldn't pursue the, the business. But the idea for the, for the business that I have now, it was mostly first as a suggestion for my brother who had some experience in the area and he saw a need and he said, Hey, hey if you build something like this, you might be able to, to find a need for a niche. And then I built a product and I put a price on it. It was, it was a very low price just to, to get started. Very limited features, just focused on basically what my brother said, had said. Just put it out there and see, start getting the feedback from customers. And as soon as you have the first customer that pays for the product, like somebody that signs up, that is such a huge motivation. It's a very a strong validation of your idea. I can't stress this enough. Like once you have just one person that is willing to pay for the product, that changes everything. And so it just went from that. I, there was not a lot of planning, a lot of consideration to, in terms of the price. It was just, here's a, a need in the market. So I'm going to say, I'm going to make the simplest, quickest product that I can do for this market and put a price on it. And then if somebody shows up and they pay, then from there on, then you just, you just make other decisions based on their feedback. The, and then the business takes you. It, it, it kind of shows you the direction to take. I mean, that's at least how it worked for me. So you are in the start. B2B space, mm-hmm. do you at any point need to contact? I know you also sometimes even do your own technical support and you are surprised that your, your customers even know about your name, know that. Mm-hmm. Do they know you're the founder who's uh, doing the support yourself? Some of them do, some don't. So yeah, so whenever somebody asks, I, I always, always tell them. And I think it's nice. I think customers appreciate that because they're talking with somebody who is involved in the product and then knows the product inside out. I like that relation, relationship with the customer. So always, always talking with them directly and you get that direct feedback. 
really, really important. So after you have been building your business, your business grows significantly, you start to see your cash building up, then you start to think about building different asset classes. I know a lot of people, probably myself included, in our 20s, when we start to accumulate money, we have something called lifestyle inflation. We start to seek status. We start to seek fancy things to probably cure our own insecurity. We spend the money that we should have putting away. But for you, well, first you invest in your own business and you haven't been taking any like venture or angels money. And you also are living way below your means. Have you even attempt to see something fancy or play the status game that one point has that part of your, your goal at some point, or you were able to talk yourself off that path and then focus on building your business and living a modest life? I think I, I never considered that the business would be very successful. I didn't really get into it just for, for the, the money or the potential earning potential, even though that was attractive, but I wasn't thinking so much of what I could achieve in terms of financial, financial assets. I just wanted number one priority for me was just have the freedom to do the work that I wanted to do more, more or less on my terms and on my pace. So that's been, that's such a high priority that kind of puts a shadow over everything else. So yeah, I never really considered, and also I'm, I like to be cautious. So I'm trying to protect this, the freedom, trying to protect the, the the business and the ability to take the the direction to go. I prefer to invest and keep as much of my money as possible to not lose that. But at the same time, I mean, I think it's important to have at least the comfort, especially for me in in the software business. It's a very creative business, and you need silence, you need your space, mode, uh, inspiration. So I try, I try to make sure that for everything that can contribute to that, to the workspace, that I, I invest in it for sure. But I, everything else that, that might be, that might seem superfluous, that doesn't really add creating this good, this good work environment, then I don't feel so compelled to invest in those things. So to summarize what you just said, when you're focusing so much on your business, because that's your natural interest and it also offer you the, the freedom that everyone's talking about and financial security or independence that gives you even more creative space, fulfill you. You don't need to seek the status that doesn't fulfill you. Yes, that's right. Everything that, that that's going to make my like life and work environment more comfortable and more, let's say, Something that promotes creativity, promotes concentration. That's what I would do. Because at the same time, I also learned what makes a difference in this, in this, in the software business. Maybe if I was working with something else, then I would invest in, in, in different things. But for me, have my, my work environment has to be a certain way that I, I notice the difference. It really helps me with my productivity and, and feeling engaged in the work. And that's, then you can see results coming from that. Cause the more engaged you are, and happy and creative, then better solutions you deliver to the customer, and then you get more resources from that. So that that's why I focus on that. I guess that's why most of the time when we meet on a bi-weekly basis, a lot of time we're talking about business in general because it fascinates and is something that fulfills us. 
Then we talk a little bit about the general economy because economy affects the business, the business affects the economy. And when we're focusing on the business so much and passionate about it, it's not our passion, but then once you start building, yeah, it becomes your everything. You, yes. you enjoy it. It's yeah. not that it's part of your passion, but then it becomes your passion because you enjoy building and growing the business. Then you don't yeah. need to use other form to fulfill yourself. Yes, it's part of your life. And if, if work is fulfilling, that's a huge chunk of your, your time. And then it kind of removes the need to, to search for, for fulfillment somewhere else. I think that's, mm. that may be one of the biggest reasons. You also know Martin. Mm-hmm. He works 60, 70 hours before because that's what he might, he, he breathes in the stars, it beats in the coding, he enjoy it. So are you working that kind of hours? What's it like for you? Or you are doing like four hour week type? I know it's not four hour week for you, but where are yeah. you in that spectrum? I think I'm, I'm doing more normal hours these days. So mostly like eight hours a day on average, just to kind of keep my productivity up. Because in the past, I was actually doing a lot more, but you can only do that for so long because after a while you get diminishing returns. So nowadays, I think after things are a little more, more stable, I get more value from, from working more sane hours. But I also do like the flexibility of being able to, if I have, if, if the, if the weather is nice, I can leave a little bit earlier just to enjoy the weather. And then I come back and I'll, I'll work a little bit more at night. So this balance works, works well for me. We also talk about now you build up your cash. Then we talk about asset classes, but while you're building value for your business, there's two options or maybe even more than two options for you to go. Money can buy options and choices, even though it might not be able to buy happiness. But with those two choices, you can do either acquisition or you can attract VC funding. Have you ever thought about getting VC funding and maybe export your business somewhere and get funding? Yeah, I think about it. I, I used to think a lot more, especially before I, I got started when I was just in, in the idea phase, just having ideas and working on projects. That, and I would kind of think, well, if I could just get a, a great idea and a great product, then I'll get a VC funding and then we'll expand. Nowadays, I, I'm not so sure what's the best path. I think that at the, as the business is at the moment, I could probably scale a little bit with the current resources that, that I have. If I can find a good let's say a, a good team or a good set of workflow, a good workflow to expand the business, then if I, let's say if I see a clear path for growth, then it might be worth it to look for funding just to, to accelerate. But at the time, I feel there's still a lot to be done just with the current fundings that the company has before we look for, for VC or, or, or the investors. Do you think that one of your strategy could be acquisition? So yeah. We're talking about perhaps buying more SaaS company, roll it up. That's another way to scale and grow. So do you ever envision yourself becoming a big fish, even though we're talking about small fish making big money? Yeah. But will that be part uh, in your too bad that it'll be that you'll be open to that option to become a well or big fish one day? Yeah, I think that would be nice. There are a lot of benefits that come with that. I do see that, but I think the way it is right now, I, I still don't, don't see a clear path towards that. So I think it is possible if you work 
if you were, if you figure out the details. So I think I'm in the phase where, let's say, if I start expanding the business and hiring people, then that would be the figuring out phase. Like I said, I think if I find a, a path, like a way to work, sort of also even a focus on what kind of products I want to do and what kind of products don't want to do, especially it's, it's, I think it's also very important to figure out what, what you don't want to do and what you don't want to be. Yes. So I, once I, if I figure that out and I see the clear path, then I can see the, the motivation to go and, and become a bigger company. Then we're moving more and more people past the middle and then the big fish become a big fish. The good thing about become a big company or big fish is then you can start to cultivate the, the culture. Yeah. According to your terms or according to vision, even helping a country to move their policy. So there's many good things to come with that kind of power to influence for the better. Yes. I see becoming a bigger company exactly, exactly as you said, as you have to have a, your vision, you have to have a, a culture for the company. And I feel like if I hired, it's the same thing as, as with finding customers. As soon as you have that one, the first customer, the second customer, they really help you give you a better idea of the, what your product is and, and what they like about it. Where to take it? I feel like if I hire, if I hire people to work for me, that will help me find out what the culture is. How does that work? With that, definitely being a, b- a bigger company, then you can work on that culture and having that focus on the products. In terms of building the founder wealth, I remember so many people will come to me. They are just think, thinking, "Oh, I want you to take care of the finance side." But it, early on, you already mentioned your. In- interested in building the whole portfolio you're interested in building wealth what has shaped your thinking about being in your young age so many people are not thinking about even building wealth until they're like 60 or until they're like close to the retirement age what other things shape your thinking that you want to have a more holistic approach to your Building value for your startup, building value and wealth for you personally, financially and in other areas. What makes you different, basically? I would say this is, this focus on finding, like building the wealth and, and all that kind of stuff is, is somewhat new. It's very new to me. I was definitely not focused on that before. I think I was just thinking, one, how can I get a job and just survive? And two, how can I get this business to work so that it, it's going to basically be a job? I wasn't thinking long term, but after we started talking and then doing the planning, financial planning made me think way more about the future and having some kind of strategy. And that's actually very a calming factor for me because then if you kind of know where more or less you're going to be in 20, 30 years, it means you don't really have to do everything today. So you know that you have time, you know, have to, that you have to, a plan to execute. So things don't become so hectic, you know. Because if you don't have a plan, then for me, it was like, well, we have to grow so fast today or tomorrow. But then if you know that you're, you're going a certain place in 30 years, it's way easier to, to plan. And it also makes me more relaxed about the future. So, so I'd say this focus on, on this is, is new. I, I didn't have this before. I was just so focused on how can I get like the monthly paycheck? Now we are thinking about how do we invest your cash so you can get well, one, beat the inflation. Second is how do you have your capital allocation even more effectively so you can make leverage everything you have as an asset building and investing class. 
So we talk about that you have a cash generating business, you create value and build a lot of value into your current startup. And also with the cash you're generating, you're investing in the public market, in the alternative market, which is the private market. Do you consider that will be something you're interested in as well? Or do you think other people should also open to that idea? It's not just for a privileged few people to look into it. I think that, well, if all these avenues are open to who, whoever wants to invest. So I think it's just a matter of finding the, the best fit for what the, what the individual wants to, to invest in. And so I, I think to me, I don't, I don't understand like a lot of the details, the, the big picture, but the way I see it is, it seems to me finding a plan that works for, for the individual. So if you do have the private, if you can do private investments in a, in a local company or something that's a little closer to you instead of doing the public market with all the, the blue chip, these big companies. I think that's interesting because then you, you have a way closer contact with your, with the, with the business. In the end, it just depends on, I would say the person's individual's preference, their opportunities. I think we, we discussed this. Uh, in the past, uh, I say this, I definitely keep it open, but for now, just because of the way that I'm focusing on, on other parts of the business, I, I just wanted to keep it simpler on the investment side. So just keep it in the public market and other traditional investment vehicles. But yeah, I think it's, if the return is there and if it's interesting, why not? This is a good time to slide in a disclaimer that whatever we talk about investment, it's not advice. <laughs> So take our this is for entertainment purpose. So it's not yeah. an advice because there's so many things go into it. Even for people who want to invest in public market, we don't support people who do speculation. Even though a lot of retail investors actually like to do that. Mm-hmm. When people ask me or you about investing, I think the best thing is I don't know anything. The reason I don't know anything is because each of the investment we decide to do, like for, for your capital allocation is we have to do the due diligence. That means do our own homework. So people, it is hard for people to ask what to do because they have to do their own homework. I don't think anyone has market insight. So that's the reason to have lie in the disclaimer. Investing is also about long term. As you say, the long term makes you more relaxed, feel like you're more in control and also not worrying so much about the fluctuation of the market because every day there's new things that we are missing out. Yes. We also talk about chat GBT. How has that, you find, I know you use same chat. Have you found that helped you increase your productivity? Yes. In, in the beginning, I think I was using it a little bit more and it, it certainly helped. But the more that I used it, the, the more that I use it, I find that sometimes because it can give you incorrect answers, you have to be very careful. So I'm still learning the best way to use it. I am figuring out in some situations it's fantastic. So, but in other situations, I have to be very cautious because especially in programming, if you type a question, it can give you the code and it can be out of date or it can be completely incorrect. But uh, yeah, so I think, well, the, the tool is also evolving as well. So even if you, even if you figure out a way to, to work with it today, that's possible the next week, 
the answers might change a bit or it might change the, the, the structure of the answer. I, I would say that it helped, but not as much as I, I thought initially. Do you see there's opportunity for you to build AI into your own products? Yes, I, I think that if it continues evolving the way it is, it's going to be, it's inevitable to, to integrate into the product, especially in terms of providing support for customers. So the way I see this might be one of the biggest business cases for AI. If you can feed all the data or your, your knowledge data or your, let's say, customer inquiries and answers, it's, it can learn what common questions are and what the correct answers are. It's going to be an evolved version of those chatbots. You know, when you, when you contact your phone company or they have those, those answers. So, but they're very limited. So if, if an AI can, can fill that space, I think that would be amazing. I, I can't even, for me, it would be an immense increasing productivity to be, to have a tool that can answer emails for me in a way that is more advanced than what the current chatbot, chatbots can do. Perhaps you can build Jonathan 2.0 to answer all the yes. support questions. <laughs> that would be amazing. I mean, if I can feed it all the, all the answers that I've written over the years, it, it would, it's going to know a lot about how the product works. So I'd say it could take 90% of the questions. It's just, I'm just not confident in it yet, just because I see the, the, the answers that I get. But I, I, if there's a, I would say if there's a SaaS business that can do that, offer this customer support with your own data. That would be amazing. For my own products, I don't see so much of a need yet just because of the market that they are in and the, the capabilities of the software. But yeah, there, there's so much happening in the space that who knows what's going to happen. Let's see next year. There may be something incredible that comes out. So yeah, but definitely, definitely the space to, to be like following closely. Because whoever is not using AI might be left behind. You talk about like if you type in something, the answer might be changed the next week. I initially used Benchat a lot more, but then they have temperament. I'm not even sure that's the word because it's AI. It's not a human. <laughs> and they, they sometimes refuse to give good answers. So I yes. tend to use ChatGPT directly. I think. The version I'm using is a free, it's 3.5, not the 4. I sometimes test its answer. Immediately, right after they gave me the answer, I type in the same question. It's a different whole set of answer. It's like, what's yeah. going on? Yeah. When this happens, that's when I, I kind of get more cautious with it, with using this tool because the, 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 the answers, they vary so much and they, they can be so like weirdly incorrect that it's hard to trust a hundred percent. But that's, that's why I said like they change it a lot, but I'm figuring out finding small ways that it can be, that it can be useful. I find that for me using small pieces of code instead of bigger pieces of code tends to, to give a pretty, pretty accurate response. But if I ask for other information, like I've, there've been many cases where I couldn't use the answer because it was completely wrong. For support, that would be amazing if we could do customer support because that's that's just using the knowledge base that I already built through my answers and the customer replies. It even knows if how the customer received the, the the answer. As a consumer, I don't like the answers that I already know. For example, when I asked something, they gave me a whole bunch of things I already checked before I asked them. They set the questions for like maybe ninety percent of the customers. I may not be not part of the 90%. 
So I get frustrated when they give me, wasting me time to read through all the, the answers that is like not useful or not, no new information. So that's one area people may need to learn how to ask better questions mm-hmm. or how to have better prompts that you get a more direct question instead of they will give you general things you already know. I'll be surprised if they haven't get this fixed by next year. But at the same time, who knows? Also surprised, for example, charging our computer. I'm surprised we, in the AI age, we are still not able to charge our computer wirelessly. Like that, that's yeah. some new product I would like to pay for. Carrying a big battery for camping, which I mm-hmm. wonder with the chip technology, why can't we make the battery smaller that we only carry it like charging, for example, our compressor switch for a week with just a iPhone kind of size battery. But now you know, some people even carry a very, very heavy, thick battery that is uh, costs thousands of dollars. Yeah, there's, there's so many areas besides AI that will have new product ideas developments that I'm still waiting. So I'm oh, yeah. curious of where we can go. Yes, definitely. Yeah, b- battery technology, that would be that's definitely one of the major areas that would apply to so many business cases, cars, and it's just storage of the solar and, and, and wind power. And for the computer side, for the computer side, you have the smaller processors that can really almost double the battery life. And yeah, things are evolving in that in that sense as well. But even using AI to help develop these new technologies, it's, it's going to happen. But I, I'm not sure. I don't think it's going to. I think it's going to take a few more years before it really gets there. Talking about Android using AI, one of the AI apps I use a lot through a syndication things in is it's a AI as founders. There's unlimited ideas we have about business, but you never know what ideas will work. What ideas will go? So I have been using, I sent a link to you. I, I've been yeah. using this app to pass out all my ideas, including the fintech I've been thinking, beverages, even a beverages shop. I've been thinking about mm-hmm. mixing drinks together that I found very interesting, but there's no product in the market yet. But mm-hmm. then the dangerous part is, that AI always make me feel good. They always say, "Yo, you have very good idea. This is good. This is good." I wonder if there's a danger there, because we constantly put in those ideas. If everything they think is good, they give you the finance. They give you the on the surface how mm-hmm. to go to market. Uh, you you need proposition about what value you bring to the market. I wonder if it makes us feel too excited, and then we just keep putting find the idea and not yet going into the market. I wonder if there's anything that it will help people to actually take the actions. For example, I talked with Martin about some of my ideas as an entrepreneur, as what mm-hmm. you said, he would just say, just go out and do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't think too much. But at the same time, we, as a person in finance or the finance background, I'm thinking about money first. I don't want to lose my money investing in things. So how do you keep the balance of, for example, I, I know fintech, like everything I've been think of, thinking of 
it's not going to, it will make, need a lot of big investments. For example, the beverages company, it will take at least a hundred thousand to start. The fintech, maybe even more, not maybe, it will take even more. So have you test out that, that app that I sent you or have you figured out a way to test your ideas faster just to start mm-hmm. to build something easy, something quick and then put it out on the market? Mm-hmm. Have you found a way to do it like in terms of speed up execution? You know, it's funny because the one of the first ideas that I had when I was starting this journey, this software journey, together with my friends, the, the roommate that I mentioned and, and a couple other friends, was to make a, a website where you would you would help entrepreneurs start their projects. But the idea of the website was that you, you had to do to do just one thing. So, for example, if you want to launch a beverage, your goal is just to make one beverage, not two. Like you have to make just one. And the, the idea was that you just basically would put your, your product, which, what, what idea it is and list all the resources that you need. So if, if it's a beverage, then you, maybe you need a cool container, like a glass, a glass bottle or something. And you need, and you need a certain ingredient. Then you would put this, what you need, this shopping list, let's say, and then local, local companies can come in and supply that to you. So if there's a bottle, a manufacturer, they can just sell you one or give you one. So the whole idea is just to get the people around you to give you the resources to build the one thing, just a single product, just to test it out. And that was, that was meant as a, as a thing to, to get you started quickly focusing on. There's even a book. I think it's called the one thing or it's the number one. I'm not sure. It's, I read it a few years ago and it's, and it talks about that, about focus. In, in the case of any idea, I'd say, yes, if you can, if you can just make one. It's or definitely easier in software because it's just, you know, it's not a physical thing. But for other, for other things too, I feel like there's a lot of opportunities. It doesn't have to be perfect, but if you, if you can, if you manage to get the resources to do one thing that you can probably manage to find more and it helps keep the costs down and your motivation up. Do one thing. Yeah. Yes. Perhaps I will bring the drink next time we meet, bring the yeah. drink so you guys will tell whether yeah. it's refreshing or not. Maybe I can sell it on the market, you know. Like doing things unscalable in the beginning is probably the way to go. Yes, exactly. And and I think come to think of it, like I remember the, the origin story of Apple. I think they the first computer that they built was just like a box, like a wood box, and they put in the the, the motherboard inside and all the, the chips and just basically put inside this box and they showed it to somebody and they thought it was cool and I think they ordered more. So yeah, it was, it was just, they just made one thing, I think, as a demo and it, and it worked. Yeah. So I, I, I will find out the name of the book that, and I can, I can give you the exact, the name on the author too for you. It's called, I think it's called the one or the one thing. I will Mm -hmm. link that to our show notes so other people can take a look at it too. Not that I don't know anything about demo. I even post something about demo sale on the in the hacker but then when you mentioned the name demo i can call the drinks demo drinks mm-hmm. at the market like mm-hmm. for people who actually are in the startup world they will know what that means yeah but maybe i'll just even set it up in some startup conference i'm going to ai investment meeting or conference in yeah. san francisco in october yeah maybe i'll bring those drinks or put it in container and then ask people call it demo drinks and see how people's yeah. reaction. Not that it's something that 
I will actually go into because I have yeah. a lot of things going on. But it's something mm-hmm. you never know. You never know if yeah. I can hire the people who do the work. Yeah. It might be something that build into my portfolio investment. Yeah, I think it's all, it's all about breaking the ice. And you never know what, what reaction you're going to have once somebody likes the drink or if they ask for more, right? Because so I feel like there, there can be a transformation that happens because you, you go in with one expectation. And then depending on the, on the response that you see from people, it might change completely how you, how you view the, the product. So I think that's why it's so interesting about making, making the thing, like putting it in, in making it into reality. It's, I think it's going to be, it can be unexpected, like how you, how you can feel after you know that somebody likes the drink. What if they ask for more, you know, and you just know the feeling after you, you give them the drink. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Now uh, it's fun talking about ideas with you, but yeah. I know that the cash you're generating in your current business was that. Did you achieve the positive cash flow away when you first started? Yes, pretty soon because the cost was was so low. Uh, not not counting the the time, the the labor, but counting the fixed costs, servers and things like that. Those resources are are extremely cheap. I think in the software world. If you discount just the labor and the time. So as soon as the product was out, I think within a month, it was already generating more revenue than it cost to keep the servers, the servers alive. So yeah, that was a very also awesome feeling because then, you know, it's almost self-sustainable. And if it, if it can grow bigger, then that, that's the, that's the amazing thing about software is that the scalability is just crazy. I'm not sure if there's any, any other business that has the same scalability potential. Because it's just copy and paste, basically. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, then forget about my beverages idea. Oh. <laughs> it's really hard to scale in terms of beverages because it's like capital heavy, uh, equipment heavy. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the SaaS space. Maybe I should discourage people to think about anything yeah. outside of SaaS. Knowing how much margins that SaaS company keeps, don't think it's a secret. But usually for SaaS, if we can inspire more people to get into SaaS, it's minimum 86% and up. It could be even yeah. 96, 98%. When you generate so much cash in the beginning so fast, it, you almost don't need to worry about the survival part. Yes, it has that, that scalability and, and the potential. But at the same time, it, it also can be a very, how can I say, it's a crowded market in some areas and uh, it lowers the barrier of entry too. So if you're investing in something outside of the SaaS, SaaS space, I think it's very, it's, it could be a really good idea because I think a lot of many, many areas are overlooked. I think it's also my brother who, who, who was working with in business at the time a few years ago. And he also noticed how some industries that kind of really fly under the radar. So a lot of people, they don't know this. Some industries that we just kind of take for granted, they can be very lucrative. I think you, I think at the time, I'm not sure today, but I, something with packaging, some, some kind of packaging for, for a product. And he said, wow, this, this business is really doing really well. And then they do something that people don't even realize, which is the package. You just something they just open and, and throw out. I can even think about maybe the ink that goes in the packaging. The packaging itself or the, the design, I mean, or the transportation. So there's a lot of so many components to every little thing that opens up the opportunity for, for people to, to jump in. Talking about business or SaaS, 
Well, one thing I didn't even realize was one of the asset class we talk about is invest in real estate. But real estate is not just about buying a commercial property or just buying residential property. Real estate can also include buying a piece of land that you can just use that for, for example, uh, I'm a big fan of camping and you can use mm-hmm. that land for, to, to rent it out for people who camp on it. And there's minimum cost as well. Yeah. Um, you, there's no maintenance. If you can buy it for 10,000, I'm not sure if 10,000 mm-hmm. is available anywhere in Canada. Or I know it used to be more available in the States. If you can buy it for 10,000 and you already make your month make your monthly like recurring revenue back within the six months, then it's no brainer that is very good asset class to invest in because building cars is about building something you generate cash from. Even though I will not call it a passive income, I think if people use that a little bit misleading, everything that has good return it's not that passive. You still need yeah. to hire people to look after it. You still look, need to look at your numbers as a mm-hmm. business owner. You still need to actively communicate with people if you're building the portfolio. So my encouragement is, is don't think about building passive, but building something you enjoy doing for a long time. Yeah, so I, I agree 100%. It's like very far from passive. It's most most things that 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 you can do that's gonna have a good return. It's they all involve a lot of work and in one way or another. So yeah, I totally totally agree. Yeah. And even in in same in the in the real estate space, there's companies that provide services to homeowners. So even like heating and cooling services or maintenance, landscaping, cleaning. So there's so much that's connected also to the real estate business that might be. Interesting, not only just the, the property itself, but the services that exist around the, the houses and, and buildings. And Those could be very good business too. Mm-hmm. So we are not encouraging everyone to just single minded to go into that because some people might not enjoy it. And then yeah. there's other good ways to make good money as long as they can keep the cost down. Then they don't have anything like a lifestyle inflation. Mm-hmm. And then we invest their money either in the business, better diversify in different wealth building asset class. I know you might not want anyone to approach you because of privacy. If anyone want to contact you, is there a way people can contact you or they, they will just comment on our podcast and then mm-hmm. you'll take a look and then yeah, I think that, get that them might- to contact you? Yeah, that's, that that might work. Or if they, or if they contact you directly, perhaps if you if you want to pass on the information. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. Okay, that's great. Just in case people start to think I'm talking to an AI robot, or you know, <laughs> no, <laughs> not no yet. Person exists. Yeah, yeah, not yet. It'll be interesting, right? If I yeah. can interview an AI one day, I think maybe next year. Pretty. Yeah. I know there's already AI voice generating. I'm not sure they can have a conversation like this. 
No, yes, uh, uh, and, and it's but even the tools that generate the voice, it's it can be very useful. I actually use them to narrate some of the some of the video support videos that I make for for my products. So yeah, very helpful. Even if it's even if you have to type exactly what you want them to say, but it, it does help keep the video more consistent. Thank you so much, thanks for Jonathan. Thank you for coming on this podcast. You are our second guest. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your generosity in terms of uh, agreeing to be on our podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank, oh. Thanks for inviting me. It's really fun. Thank you for listening. If you find this podcast valuable and would like to help build the Small Fish Big Money movement, please subscribe and leave us a review or comment. Until next time, keep the game going.